passion. Love is the last thing on her mind. Until one day, fate heralds a dying wish from the only family she ever knew. Now, she's getting married. To the one man who will take her for better or for worse. This summer, Love is a battlefield. Sex is an adventure. And divorce is out of the question. a gangster. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Well, I'm tired from doing all the housework while my gangster wife is extorting money from local businesses and stabbing gangsters. We're doing our bit for gender equality in this role reversal. How are you? <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm doing nothing of the sort, but I am eager to hear more about your exploits. Your gangster exploits, or adjacent well, gangster, gangster exploits. Yes, I'm just adjacent, as you say. And just like you, you hinted today, we are covering at least the first movie in the "My Wife Is a Gangster" trilogy, perhaps the sequels as well, depending on uh, on how the discussion goes. So why don't we jump straight into that? Uh, the film, uh, the first film, is titled "My Name Is a Gang." My name, <laughs> my wife is a gangster. So, Jason, as always, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, info and a summary of the film? So, My Wife is a Gangster is a 2001 comedy directed by Zhou Jinghu and starring popular actor, actress Xin Yun Kyung, who's playing against type. Known for her warm-hearted roles, she plays a cold-hearted gangster forced to look for love. It was released on September 28th, 2001 and earned $26.4 million at the Korean box office, making it the fourth highest grossing film of the year. Two sequels were made, My Wife is a Gangster 2 in 2003 and My Wife is a Gangster 3 in 2006. The plot reads like this. We follow a feared female gangster named Cha Yun Jin, who tracks down her long-lost sister, who was separated, uh, who they were separated uh, when they were both children, and she finds that her sister's dying. Her sister's final request is that she asks Cha to get married. Eager to make it happen, Cha sends her gang to find a man who will marry her, and she settles for a naive and good-natured guy, with no knowledge about her life as a gangster. So, the cast is led by Shin Yun Kyung, who plays Cha Yun Jin, the gangster whose skills uh, involve using scissors to cut up her opponents. And uh, she's got support from Park Sung-myun, who plays the husband, and 
We've seen him before. He plays Ashtray in the gangster film number three, which we uh, talked about in a previous series of Heroic Purgatory. And uh, yeah, other notable names include Shin Won Chol as Majin Ka, Yunjin's lieutenant. And yeah, we've is got... that is that the guy with a metal plate on his head? Yes. Yeah, that was quite a reveal when it happens in the in the film. Yes, the, and we've also got uh, two writers uh, involved in this project, Kang Hyojin, uh, who also directed The Dude in Me, and Kim Moon Sung, and this seems to be his biggest uh, film. And as mentioned previously, this was directed by Jo Jin Kyu, who returned to the series to direct My Wife is a Gangster Free. All right. So, what's uh, what's your history with this film? And I guess the, another question will be: Did you watch the sequels? So, yeah, I remember this being one of the standout titles of the early Korean wave of the two thousands because it has such a great high concept to it. You know, the whole thing about the gender reversal, where the woman's the gangster and the husband's like the stay-at-home person. And uh, I thought it could be a funny comedy. It's always stuck in my memory, and I thought it might have a feminist thrust. And uh, I watched it for the first time for this podcast episode, uh, sort of like 20 years later, and uh, I really didn't like it. (laughs) I think there are like so many problems with this film, structurally on the screenplay level, that it really took me out of the story and um probably like i had a misconception going into it as to like how much of a feminist film or even how pointedly political this might be uh, this is a really broad comedy and um yeah it just didn't work for me um i ended up watching the rest of the series um and uh there's improvements with each sequel but uh ultimately i didn't like the rest of the series either so this was a a major misfire. And can I just say that watching uh, My Wife is a Gangster Free, following on from last year's um, The Assassin, I'm getting a sneaking suspicion that September of every year is going to be a uh, I Hate Shu, uh, Shu Chi movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what was uh, your experience and what are your opinions on it? Well, this might be this might be a first for a podcast because you're usually the optimistic one, and I tend to be the curmudgeon who kind of finds flaws with everything. Uh, because I, I mean, I enjoyed this movie. I agree with you on a lot of levels about flaws that this movie has, but I, I found it overall, you know, a, a relatively pleasant experience. I don't think this is like a you know like a uh, a feminist mainstay or a you know, or a big statement movie, but I do think there is some interesting role reversals that I think are for this being relatively a commercial project. This was not an art film. This was not a political film. I don't think it was ever intended to be. Again, fourth highest grossing Korean film of the year at a time where Korean film was exploding. This was clearly not not meant to be not a crowd crowd pleaser, if if that makes sense. So I think my expectations may have been somewhat, like, you know, affected by that. Uh, but, you know, in those contexts, I found somewhat, somewhat, you know, interesting, some interesting choices by the movie, some positive things, some, a lot of negative things. So I would agree with you on a lot of those negative but I, I felt like overall the movie was uh, a relatively, relatively fun one, a relatively enjoyable one. And 
yeah, the the feminist sides are not as mature, but there are, I think, some talking points that perhaps, perhaps, I think the film does kind of try to get across. Uh, and but just to get back to the history, to my history with the series, I I have I have always been aware of this film, but I've never watched it uh, until in preparation for this podcast. And particularly the reason why, because of what I mentioned, this was always kind of like struck me as just a one of those just commercial films uh, that that are popular in in Korea, but don't necessarily have a lot of value outside of Korea. I don't think that's necessarily entirely true, but I think it is mostly true. Uh, I don't know that a lot of critics or cinephiles go back to this when they study sort of like the history of the Korean New Wave, which was slightly before this, and then the new Korean cinema, which is what this was at, at the very height of it, as it, as it was kind of ramping up to like a big, fast start. But I don't know that this is necessarily like in anybody's lips when they kind of talk about like, you know, the, the, like the power of Korean cinema around this time. Yeah, like I tried um, looking for any sort of research papers or you know any criticism, contemporary criticism about it, and I couldn't find much. Um, and I feel like this was probably like the right film at the right time because like uh, Korean gangster films were exploding after like so many years of censorship, and um, like they were riding high after like the fall of Hong Kong gangster films, which were immensely popular in the nineties, and you had all sorts of great concepts for Korean gangster films where they subvert various roles or critique society and I think yeah like, like number my, three number three yeah, is, number three is always the, oh, the I think the, the golden the gold standard of, of those examples of those that category in my opinion absolutely number three about like um, and and green fish as well like um, yes. the changes to Korean society Sli slightly more melodramatic but yes yeah and uh, yeah satire about capitalism and um, so forth and yeah, this came out in a year where you had just an incredible number of films like Friend and My Sassy Girl and um, Kick the Moon and Guns and Talks. So you just had so many different variations on sort of female archetypes, gangsters and so forth. And um, I think I watched it for a second time, like understanding that like I had the misconception about sort of how feminist this would be. And I was still disappointed that like, the best elements of My Wife is a Gangster are the bits where they critique sort of the gender roles and they look at the marriage specifically and like um, Charles' like place within the world of the um, gangland um, crime syndicates and how her femininity is tied into that. Uh, but it's bogged down by too many of the gangster cliches where we have to deal with like three other subplots, including like a rival gang trying to take her out and do business deals which are never really explained and when they do try to explain them it's just too much time taken taken away from the marriage you've got the underlings meeting a bunch of various thugs and you know that uh brings in themes of like professionalism and um undying loyalty to your bigger brother and so forth and it allows foreshadowing for the plot but again you know these are all like cliche gangster stuff and it's all perhaps it's there specifically to appeal to a male audience because you get rumbles and you get that broad sort of um, lowbrow comedy and yeah it just took away from like the more interesting aspects which is um uh yun jin's um place in the world which is what made me laugh a lot more because you had great satire about the marriage where her husband is trying to sort of like 
hey, I'm, I'm being a decent guy, I'm allowing you to have some freedom, but please, can you try and adhere to, like, the feminine archetype and speak politely and, uh, you know, keep the house in order? Yeah, I, there was pointed criticism in that, and there was uh, funny aspects to it, because you had uh, Yunjin's rough and ready personality breaking out against that archetype, which is what gangster films are all about, having those rough and ready personalities, giving that freedom, and allowing the audience that space to consider like what society is about and like the restrictions placed on people. I'd like to kind of bring up a couple of points that you mentioned now and in your introduction. First of all, is this really a comedy film? You labeled it as a comedy film. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think this is more of an action thriller with a lot of comedy elements, but it gets really dark sometimes. Like, uh, like especially like the marriage between the two characters, the between the uh, the main character and her somewhat office like average office worker of a husband. I would yeah, he's her. like a city worker. Yeah, it. I mean, yeah, that gets dark. I mean, she almost rapes him. I think we can call him at some point. Uh, constantly abuses him, and some of those scenes are played with comedy, but some of them I found them very very cringy. In it, sort of a. In, not in a comedic way, cringy, I would guess. I, do you think this is, like, of the age that it's made? That, like, um, yeah, it's like the husband tries having his way with his wife, and then the wife does it the other way around when, like, her sister says, you've got to have kids. Yeah. And, like, this, this subject matter would be treated a, a lot more differently these days, whereas in the past it would, it would definitely be played for laughs. Well, that's, that's what I sort of can make my mind about. Is it just a thing of the time where it was played for laughs, or were there filmmakers kind of seeing something? Because, like, after at some point we do get, like, a very serious moment between the, the husband and the wife where he says, you're just a bad person. And that I don't think that's played for laughs. I think that is... Uh, uh, something that the filmmakers acknowledge in that sort of that situation. That's why I kind of said that I think that the film does have a few moments that it kind of, I think that it kind of make it make it stand out from what you typically get of a comedy of a of the time, uh, like a scene like that, or like I think when you mentioned some of the stuff that don't involve the wife and the husband, but I do like the subplot of the of one of her underlings and. Uh, his relationship with the other woman who works at a nightclub or something like that. And, you know, it's, it's not, you mentioned there are gang rivals and I do agree that some of them are very cliche, but then again, it is a, you know, a hundred, you know, one hour and 40 minutes, you got to fill it somehow. But, uh, you, you, got, you, you got to fill it somehow, but like the writing at the end falls apart where they're just chopping and changing between subplots and it feels like there's not enough time to develop any of them satisfactory so especially with some, the marriage with some of that i agree but i did like the subplot between that like that particular like the her underling who gets killed by not the rival gang but with just some random teenagers i don't know what they were but they weren't a gang they were just some people who had like a and like the beginning of that subplot was played for comedy but the ending was not and i think in, at least in my opinion, that works because it, it first of all it juxtaposes sort of like the transformation of you know, her, the main character's sort of like trying to survive in this world in sort of, with a sort of a machismo way and then in a very, very like, like uh, subtle way embracing a more feminine side to her. And then this kind of like very traditional cliche machismo that, that gets the character killed. And I don't think it's a very profound point. I think it's, a, you know, perhaps somewhat cliche, but I don't know. For me, it kind of, it does work. I did, I did feel 
the tragedy at the end where he finally, finally decides to change, but he just can't let go of that kind of bravado that he's kind of essentially like embedded into his personality when he sees those teenagers or that like yeah, 20s, like they cannot be more than like 23, 24. Uh, and then, like, even then, when they kind of, like, stab him, it's like, like, what have I done? What do we do? We didn't, like, we're not, that's not what we do. And they just run away. And he's like, you know, it's like a, like a, tra- a very tragic moment, in my opinion. I, yeah, I just see that as adhering to sort of, like, typical themes of professionalism that you um, find in uh, many gangster films. But, um, like, the whole thing about the underling and his girlfriend, and um, also Cha Yun-jin, like, the underling embraces a more feminine side softens towards his girlfriend who he's been abusing throughout the film and just at that point he gets punished <laughs> uh with violence and um yeah but it's not it doesn't feel undeserved it feels deserved because we have seen that entire interaction between between them and and him so it doesn't feel like it's just the writers punishing them for because i understand sort of what you mean but it, i don't think that's the case here because we have there is a progression to how to, to what happens that leads to his punishment, even though he does change, and I think that elevates the tragedy. But then that goes further to subvert any sort of like feminist reading, because like when he's dying, and his girlfriend's like, "Hey, uh, don't die! You can abuse me as much as you like." After she's lectured him about treating her with more respect. I, I mean, that's just a cheesy. I mean, I understand it's a bit cheesy, but that's just like you know, like like last word, last like it's you know, like I don't think she means abuse me. I think it's just. Kind of trying to make try to make light of a situation that is kind of like I said, like fundamentally tragic. I don't, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that af- should affect the reading. I, I, I grant you, it's too cheesy, it's too, too cliche. But I don't, it didn't bother me that much. Yeah, I just found that like it's emblematic of, um, or it's a great example of how the writing just doesn't hold up because if it was developed more, if there was more of a, a, a a critique of masculinity, uh, a more focused one, then I wouldn't have had so much of a problem with it and, um, you know, wouldn't have had to have <laughs> rewatched it a number of times just to I don't sort think, of... I don't think the film intends to be a critique of masculinity. I think it just, a, it, it's, it's almost like a case study. Here's what's like to, in a, like a female in a male world, but takes the most extreme form of a male world, which is the world of gangsters and what is like a female. And, and we often, uh, usually towards the end of our episodes this season, we ask, is this, is the femininity of the, of the main character important in this movie? Or could you just replace the, the character with a, with a male actor and it would work the same? And I think, at least in my opinion, that doesn't work in this film. If, if, if you have a male actor it doesn't work like the, the the film just doesn't work anymore like the the femininity the the fact that the main character is a female actor it is essential to this film and yes there's a lot of cliches that go along with it but it's still i think it's essential to how this film works and how the plot evolves yeah it's it's important because she's constantly punished for being a woman essentially like she's built up as a legendary fighter and um Everybody looks up to her, and yet, like, it's her femininity that constantly gets her put down by others, that makes others underestimate her, and that weakens her in battle, especially in a final battle where, you know, she's pregnant, and, like, that's used to sort of, like, pull the rug from out under her and make her as weak as possible so that her husband 
has to come in and sort of restore the balance of the gender roles. Yeah, and uh, and you know, like as I mentioned again, like the darkness of this movie, she ends up, you know, having a miscarriage. Yes. So yes, I, I think it's is... a, like if it is a comedy, it's very atypical of a Korean comedy for the time. It, like I, I read it as a comedy, just a really badly written one where like it has muddled messages and so many cliches and melodramatic moments that I just it just like bored me to tears. Uh, I uh, wrote down when I finished watching this movie, and when I finished, I, I only watched the first sequel. I did not watch the second sequel, which, which I understand it's not really related. Absolutely, no, yeah. The second film has. Um, Cha Yun-jin return, only she's got amnesia, and she's working in a Chinese fusion restaurant as a yeah. waitress, a delivery person. But the third film is unrelated from what I understand. I mean, I didn't it's, watch that one. Yeah, Xu Chi plays a, a, the daughter of a triad uh, gang leader who stays in Korea, and um, she's on the run from a rival gang who's sent assassins to get yeah. her. At the end of the second one, there is a Chinese gang gangster who kind of meets with uh, meets with uh the main character uh is that supposed to be shu chi's in the shu chi in the third movie or is that no, just uh zhang ji from crouching tiger hidden I, I, I know it's a different actor so i understand that but oh is it the same character but, is it supposed yeah. to be i mean probably couldn't get the same actors that makes sense they couldn't afford uh young zhang ji but uh could they, is that just, could it be the same character somehow, maybe earlier in, in her time or something like that? Yeah, this is uh, Zhang Xi just as she was blowing up, so they probably got her before her sort of uh, paycheck uh, sort of exploded. Yeah. But um, uh, I don't think it's meant to be the same character. Okay. I think it's meant to reference how popular the first film was in China. Oh, I see. I, I didn't, I, uh, okay, that makes, that makes more sense. Yeah, because like, um, I've read headlines about how this had been optioned not just by Miramax for an American remake, but also like Chinese territories. But uh, I haven't found any more news about a Chinese remake. Yeah. Uh, I wrote down what I was going to say before is when I, when I first watched the first one and the second one, after I finished, I wrote down, this movie could have very well been a Hong Kong 80s action movie. I don't know what that was about it, but I felt like, like it's it like had a lot of a lot of inspiration from Hong Kong eighties action movie. Like it could have been something starring Michelle Yeoh in the eighties, uh, in Hong Kong. And I felt like this film would have fit in there a lot more than it did fit with the South Korean sort of like new Korean cinema of the early two thousands. Do you think it's because there's a mishmash of styles? I think so. Yeah, I think I think I think that was a lot more typical in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, in Hong Kong cinema of the time, I think they Hong Kong did a did necessarily better job of kind of kind of blending this kind of somewhat idiosyncratic mixture of comedy and drama, and sometimes really really swinging from one end of the spectrum to the other. Uh, you even had that in some Stephen Chow movies, which you've talked about before. Um, uh, but like the other thing that I liked about the movie is the cinematography. You had some really like it wasn't it felt somewhat experimental maybe somewhat uh, more a lot more like you would see in a Wong Kar Wai film in that there's like you have like parts of the movie where it's like very naturalistic and very kind of conventional and then you have other parts where there's like really bright colors like really bright reds or bright blues that kind of like that kind of like accentuate certain scenes and certain emotions and usually those emotions aren't overly melodramatic in typical South Korean fashion but 
yeah, the, what was it, bright red for when the underling is dying. Yes, absolutely. Like in a lot of scenes. That was throughout the movie, more in the first movie than in the second movie. I thought the second movie was a lot more conventional. Like you said, some things are improved, uh, but some things, again, like I just, I felt like it didn't quite have that, like the, uh, the uh, bravery in kind of like, it felt like the second film felt like just a lot more conventional, a lot more polished, for lack of a better term. Definitely sort of in terms of like, look, the first film has this fantastic duel between Yunjin and an assassin where they've just got knives and they're in um, a field of reeds. And uh, I've read that it's a homage to um, Akira Kurosawa's um, Sanshiro Sugata. But yeah, that's like got a very sort of impressionistic feel to it as oh, the characters it's, it's are flying across the screen. That's right. Impressionistic was the word that I was looking for. But uh, it's actually interesting that you mentioned because what I wrote down what that scene reminded me uh, uh, is not Akira Kurosawa or Sanjuro, uh, but it reminded me of Masaki Kobayashi's Samurai Jewel, specifically Harakiri, which they have a scene that is almost identical, where taken in a place in a place with tall grasses and the winds blowing and similar camera angles. Action yeah. movement is different, of course, because they fight with samurai swords. Uh, yeah, but it reminded me of a lot of that, and also like in Samurai Rebellion, there, there is a similar, not quite as as. Not quite the same, but it's a similar uh, that happens like in a cornfield or a hayfield or something like that between um, uh, Tatsuya Kam uh, Mak what's his last name? Nakadai. Nakadai and uh, Toshiro Mifune in, in Samurai Rebellion. Uh, there's a similar fight scene at the end, whereas in, in Harakiri, there's an almost identical fight scene like this one, except they don't use knives. They use samurai swords, but it happens, I think, when, he, when Nakadai tells the story of uh, how he killed like the first three underlings. I think that's the third guy that he that he's telling the story. That the, the third flashback, yeah, uh, where he's having the duel, and that's a fantastic duel. And I that I, that had to be like a, either a conscious or a subconscious uh, inspiration. I don't remember any particular duels from the Sanjuro movie, so I maybe there's that too. Yeah, and like I think like you see this progression in or this increase in quality and production values where my wife is a gangster free looks more like we're familiar with with contemporary um korean movies just a lot slicker editing's a lot tighter um it's a lot glossier uh but again it's kind of like a film where you've got this uh powerful female but like her power is undermined as she has to fit into the hierarchy and um, adhere to sort of all the visual signifiers of what it is to be a woman. Whereas in the first one, it like Cha Yun Jin is a great character because she does not fit into those visual signifiers. And a lot of comedy is mined where um, she's having to be trained to be a woman. And you see the absurdity of beauty standards, like when she's wearing makeup and she's looking like a clown and uh, she's constantly angry with her henchmen and uh, she can't fight in like, um, one piece dresses and high heels and uh, yeah i just thought like all that stuff was much more effectively delivered in in the first one but then like it, there wasn't enough of it because you had all this cliched gangster stuff uh yeah i mean i mean like i said the cliched gangster stuff didn't bother it as much but i like when you said that this was a, a role against type because i think she does a fantastic job i think part of the reason why that works so well is because the actors does a fantastic job in kind of portraying that that like stuck in between worlds type of character yeah, she's got a fantastic look. This really like square jaw, 
and there's very repressed movements so she's all about efficiency and she's very muted when she talks as well she's very like grunting at times uh not talking at all so it's like counter to what you would expect from a female role it fits in with like a sort of moody gangster yeah absolutely uh and um uh, one thing that I was a bit disappointed was in the second movie is at the end of the first, we get the impression that she teams up with her husband, but by the second movie, it looks like her husband is just, he's out of the picture. Yeah, it's, it's like he's totally forgotten about. There's a whole thing about her recovering her memories, but oh, they, like the only returning character is her lieutenant, the one with the metal plate in his head. Absolutely. Well, because her like, second in command, well, or her third in command. Is that and a rival right. gangster? And a rival gangster? Is he? Was it White Shark? He comes yeah. back. Well, what, the, White Shark was the guy with the long hair, right? Yes. Who I was he? I don't. I didn't recognize him in the first movie. Who was he supposed to be in the first movie? So he was the leader of the gang, sending people to disrupt uh, Yoon Jin's wedding. Was he? Did he have white hair in the first movie? Yeah, I think he also had um, long white hair. No, he had. He, I think he had short white hair. Well, it's definitely the same actor. Maybe I got the hairstyles wrong, but it's the same okay. actor. Okay, it looked very different. That's why I kind of couldn't recognize them. Even though I actually watched these two movies back to back, I still like, like I was, it kind of rang a bell. I said, is this the same actor? I guess I didn't bother to check the names, but it did feel like they did look significantly different. I don't know why they made that choice. Uh, the, in the first movie, what happened to him to, where he get that voice color uh, device? Is it, was it from the fire? I can only assume that it's that. Because he, he, he has absolutely no signs of burn, no burn signs in his, in his appearance. There's, there's some continuation where you get the sense that, oh, he's being picked out to the boonies because he's lost his place in Seoul, and he's trying to rebuild his gang. And uh, that's about it. There's no mention about, like, uh, well, apart from, like, uh, mentioning what Yoon Jin did to his henchmen in the first film, that's, you know, that, that's about it. It's kind of like a, a new story where he's trying to muscle in on a business community and Yoon has amnesia. So again, it's like another set of gangster cliches, essentially. The gangsters defending the community. I think the, the second movie is, I think, more straightforwardly defined as a comedy compared to the first. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think the first one, I'm not sure that it is a comedy, but the second one, I think it's closer to sort of like a, a, a dramedy, maybe, or a comedy drama. Yeah, I kind of felt like Muddle's writing became a lot clearer in the second one as they uh, adhered closer to sort of tropes and uh, relied much more on uh, comedy rather than action. So like comedy of um, uh, crossed uh, wires where people uh, have misconceptions of each other. Um, at, but there's also this nasty strain of uh, like anti-woman comedy because every Korean woman, essentially in all three films, is seen as scheming or petty or, or exercising some sort of jealousy. In the second movie, but not in the first movie so much. Not, not in the first movie so much. In the first movie, I mean, any female character other than her are very shallow, except maybe her sisters. Because uh, the other woman is kind of like a stereotype, like nightclub girl, like a pretty girl who's just like there to help her like look nice. But I don't think she's necessarily scheming or doing anything anything bad in the second movie yes in the third film you've got the translator who's um, working with shuti and uh shuti's character and um like because none of the male characters can speak um cantonese uh she's able to interpret whatever she wants and um she ends up exploiting that 
uh, to her own advantage at first. It's funny because she's exercising her rage at like um, the misogyny that she faces at the hands of the gangsters and Korean society in general, but then at, she turns into a bit of a monster as she takes uh, too much advantage of it and um, starts mistreating people. So it's kind of like Cha Yunjin is like the one super positive sort of a Korean woman in all three films. Um, and only then she's positive because she conforms to masculine archetypes. She sheds all of her feminine traits, essentially. Yeah. Uh, everybody can look up to her because of that. But I mean, that's kind of the point, right? And that she only kind of discovers she struggles with that only when he finally meets her sister. And I kind of like that. I like I thought the subplot with her sister was pretty, uh, pretty well handled and it doesn't. They don't go a lot into the backstory. All we get a backstory is just like a couple of flashbacks and her looking at a picture and you got to jump straight into the plot. And then, yes, it is a little bit, it is a little bit like cliche, but I think that's part of the, 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 the point is that it's, it, she is the most non-traditional woman in Korean society as far as, as, uh, as this film is concerned. There's, if, if there is a spectrum and the traditional Korean woman is on the end when uh, Cha Jin, what's her name? Is that her name? Uh, oh, Sherry, the um, girlfriend no, of the. No, 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 the main character. The main character. Oh, yeah, Cha Yun Jin. Cha Yun Jin is as far uh, on, on the opposite side of that spectrum as you can have. Yet, yes. th then comes into the picture her sister, who essentially demands the most traditional things one can demand of a woman. I want you to get married, I want you to have a kid, and I want you to be nice to your husband. And that's like it's it's not it's not clear, but I did like that juxtaposition between you know sort of the the love the the relationship between the two sisters is kind of like it's kind of rooted in this in this very traditional image of what Korean society is to be. And yes, I don't know I don't know what exactly the point that the film is trying to make with her sister wanting this more traditional life for her for her sister. That's why I said I don't think this is a film of this is a, a film that criticizes any aspect of Korean society. I think this is just presents a case study. Here's an example of, of people that are one is traditional and what it's not, and this is the the plot that unfolds. I don't think the film makes any case here or trying to to criticize anybody. It's just it's just it just presents uh, presents a, a state of things. Yes, like I said earlier, when I first went into it, I had this misconception that it would be feminist and that it would have this critique, whereas the writing doesn't sustain that because like, it introduces all of the ways that women are punished for being women and like how they look down upon, and it doesn't offer any remedy for it. That, that's what I'm saying. Well, that, the film doesn't, go, doesn't, doesn't present solution. He just says, this is what it is, but it doesn't actually hide it. It doesn't, it doesn't disguise it in a way. It presents it in a most obvious term. It doesn't offer any remedy. It doesn't even outrightly like go out and criticize it. It just presents it, and we are we can see it as criticism. And I think that the film is successful in that aspect. Well, we can see it as a negative, not a criticism. We can see the negative sides of that society, and we can see, you know, like a, a I think what is a strong female character in Chai Jin. But ultimately, like the film resets the sort of uh, the status quo. So the patriarchy is not upset. By the presence of Cha Yunjin, because she may be a strong woman, she has to discard her femininity. Not only that, her husband has to step in and save the day. Well, he doesn't really save the day, though, right? He's just kind of like he's there to help. I think. I think the end again. Maybe this is uh, 
maybe this is just my reading, but I felt, I felt as in a way he was under her the entire time, I mean, literally sometimes, but he was sort of like, <laughs> uh, like inferior in the relationship. And I think it's her more, him more being elevated to an equal status in the relationship. And that's how I read that kind of the ending to that scene, not necessarily in the sense of that he has to come in and kind of assume the traditional male role. It's more like he's elevated to being an equal, and now they have a balanced relationship, which is the healthy way. I don't, of course, I, I would agree with you that the film kind of rushed at the end to kind of like, like kind of um, bring everything to a, to a close, but that's kind of like the, the, the take that I had from it. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. But it, again, it undermines like the whole thing about Cha Yunjin being like this uber character. I think a, a more effective comedy and something that might have a feminist critique, which is what we've established. This film probably wasn't setting out to do, or maybe the writers just um, couldn't quite massage it into the final product. But one would be totally focused on the relationship between Cha Yunjin and her husband Kang Soo Il, and like comparing their two different perspectives about how the marriage works, and then trying to integrate that into the uh, gang life essentially. And again, the writing's just so clunky. You've got all of this ganglang stuff with the underlings that just takes away from it. And I think I would have preferred it if it was just focused on the marriage itself. Like if this were an American movie, like So I Married an Axe Murderer, for example. It's totally focused on the start of the relationship leading up to the marriage. That's a nice chunk where you could get sort of like differences in gender roles and uh, comedy surrounding crime. And you don't have to um, expend so much time talking about like having children and so forth. You could have something very effective with something so narrow and focused like that. And like the writing in the first film is just way too clunky. Yeah, so that film in America that would star Sigourney Weaver and Jack Black. That would that would be a good team up, actually. Yeah, and that would ta- also would take very different dimensions. But I feel like I cannot think of any more. Maybe maybe a younger, uh, uh, what's his name? Maybe a younger. Uh, yeah, what's his? Oh, his name escapes me. John Goodman. I knew it was John, but yeah, maybe a younger John Goodman could have been in the American adaptation. Um, yeah, Jack Black, because like you would have that extreme uh, difference in reactions. Yeah, and Jack Black is getting up there in years too. So, uh, but I was gonna say, uh, what do you think of the action in the movie? It's kind of typical for like early two thousands Korea in the sense that it's got a rough and ready quality to it. So, like, it looks really nasty when people get hit. Yeah. Other than the 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 one the the sort of like the samurai inspired fight at the uh, in the like the grass fields, I did not really care for the action. I thought it was like like you said, very average, very typical. I, that's one of the reason why maybe I would have preferred for this to be an eighties action Hong Kong film because they would have probably put a lot more effort into that. Did you, uh, did you think there was like too many action scenes where it cut away just before? things started or it cut into the action just as things were finishing yeah and, and it, so that's true and it was also one of those things that were clearly like the main actress was not necessarily proficient in fighting so they yeah. had they used you know like very obvious camera tricks to hide the fact that it was probably very likely replaced with a stunt woman or 
you know, used wires. I mean, the wire work, I did not bother me. That was a stylistic choice. I looked at like slightly exaggerated, but um, there was like almost like a, this is maybe more obvious in the second film than the first one, but maybe like a superhero quality to the action where her, especially her powers are almost like portrayed as uh, supernatural. And she's even like, they do that thing in like, which is often martial arts or superhero films where there's like a, a worthy opponent that is like at a level above everyone else uh, which was yeah. the japanese guy in this case i think like that superhero aspect would have been great um especially if you were going to have a, a sort of feminist take on this film because like you the film constantly undermines cha yun jin's character and everything and if she had been a much more tougher opponent then we the audience would have had to have um faced a lot more directly, like all the ways she's denigrated. But, and um, uh, what leads me to say that is like there's a line in the first and second film of My Wife uh, is a Gangster series where like the men are commenting on women and um, the women will say, oh, Do you treat your mother like that or do you treat your wife like that? And um, it reminded me of a line in, um, is it uh, not Royal Warriors? Yes, madam where uh, Michelle Yeoh and Sophia Rothrock um, rock up to the bad guy's mansion and um, the henchmen are, are laughing and saying, hey, you know, women like to talk too much. Women have got long tongues. And then um, I think it's Michelle Yeoh says, oh, your, your, mo your, your, um, your mothers are women as well. And then proceed to, you know, kick the crap out of all the henchmen in the mansion. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's a, you know, I know it's very shallow, but yeah, that's like women taking care of business. So there's no way you can um, sort of uh, deny them their respect whereas uh like my wife is against the films always find some way of like denying that like last that well he does kick he does kick the guy to to a lot <laughs> and he does kind of beat him up a lot after she says that line at least i don't remember it in the first movie but in the second movie she does that definitely without question yeah but at the end at the end it's always down to like men to sort of reset the balance and hey patriarchy's still here well yeah and i i think i, I in some ways i like that more because it's not the patriarchy is not gonna go by a woman a woman kind of showing up and being kick-ass like it has to take it it, it 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 takes systematic change it takes it takes low and i prefer i prefer this approach where it shows it shows the the state of things as opposed to oh here I'm gonna I'm gonna like like fix everything on my own. That's that superhero like attitude is maybe fun to watch. I don't know for some people, but it it's 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 not the way to go. It's unrealistic. It doesn't it doesn't offer any any thought provoking. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice if Wonder Woman was real, but she's not. So what are we gonna do in the real world? And I I prefer this where yes, this is the state of things. The first step in fixing it is realizing it, and I think that's what movies are more effective at doing, like raising awareness of something, other than, you know, someone who has no degree in, in like, actual in political science or sociology or philosophy offering their half-assed uh, remedy for for what's the what's the what's the best way to to approach something yeah and uh this could just be down to sort of my misconceptions of what the film was and like seeing like this great high concept and this way that you could have approached it and uh, and like seeing the film fumble it essentially and perhaps that's why this film doesn't have legs like not many people are speaking about it or writing about it today because it's it's a, it's an okay comedy okay action um it has a little to say about gender roles but 
it just muddles it all. I mean, and I'm I'm defending the film in a lot of ways, but I, I also did not, you know, I enjoyed it to a certain extent. I do agree with a lot of your criticism, especially with the writing, uh, not with the points, the, the specific points, but I did find myself several times in the first and the second film kind of feeling bored and just kind of wanting to speed it up a little bit. Like, it wasn't a lot, but it was certainly like maybe, maybe the, the, there was a 10, 20% uh, of the movie spread out in various places where I was just kind of like bored and and didn't care for whatever was happening on the street. So I definitely did find that. So, so in terms of that aspect, I definitely agree that the writing could have improved a lot. Yeah, it's something televisual, like um, in terms of the look, especially the second one, but also in the writing itself, like this uh, episodic elements to the first two films. It was like, especially the second one was like a lot of set pieces, set pieces just kind of put one after the other. Yeah, and there's just so much time spent on the setup that... Like when it comes to the conclusion, you've got like ten minutes. Let's rush it all, and it just feels unsatisfactory. Uh, I did like in the first film. I think they kind of did away with this in the second film almost entirely. But I did like the rock music soundtrack. That's one thing I forgot about. <laughs> it was like I enjoyed it. I thought it was really well made. Uh, like it felt that like it kind of elevated the action, elevated the, uh, the maybe a chase scene in the first film, if I remember correctly, uh, or something like that. And I, I thought they did a pretty good job. It was. You know, generic rock. I don't know that I would necessarily something that I listened to it, but I thought it was very, very well utilized. It went very well. There was like a punk sort of aspect to it that I thought matched sort of like the tone of the movie pretty well. Yeah, like the only music that stood out to me was like the um, dance soundtrack at the very start <laughs> of the first yes. film. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. What What else can we say about this film? I, I did not see the third one. Is there anything specifically about the third one that uh, you think is like worth mentioning that is not present in the first two films? I uh, I think Shuchi is given a much more um, action oriented role, and um, like she's given a, a lot more respect um, as a character, and I. I feel like like if there's any film in the series which has a uh, much more focused feminist critique, it's probably this one. Does it take place entirely in Korea, or is it one of those that goes back and forth between China and Korea? Back and forth between um, Hong Kong and okay. Korea. Okay, I see. Okay. And there are better action set pieces, but again, like the editing is just uh, lets it down because you're cutting in and out of the action just gets interesting. And is, uh, is the, the scissors still a, the a theme? No, no, no. Uh, more weapons, like sniper rifles, um, kukri knives. Um, okay, I see. A lot of focus on like um, gangland activity um, and uh, gangster comedy. Um, so it's kind of, again, a mixed bag, but probably the sharper of the three films. I, I just, um, I, uh, doing some reading about My Wife is a Gangster, I found out that it was the winner of the 2001 Ready Stop Award given to the worst Korean movie of the year. So it seems like it wasn't um, oh, wow. liked by many audience members or critics. Well, critics, I would assume, because if it was the fourth top grossing film, like that, that couldn't have been, you know, couldn't have been too bad. Or maybe it's people um, taking a chance of getting burned. Okay, anything else? Uh, that well, that's about it on my end. <laughs> yeah, there's not like I, I again. I, uh, there's not really a lot to talk about this film. Like, like I kind of like I, I did. Uh, I did think there's a little bit more to it than you thought, but uh, like we a fraction more. I do like, especially I did like the main 
character. I did like the main character. I did like the acting of the main character. I did like the scenes that the main character was. But there's not really a lot to talk about. I did... The comedy worked for me. I don't think it was a comedy as a film as a whole, but whenever there were comedic moments, it did work. I do think the film is appropriately dark at places, like, and it gets really, really dark sometimes, which is why I don't necessarily think it's it's uh, a comedy. Uh, it's a, entirely a comedy. But I also, like I said in the very beginning, this movie isn't really talked about, even among Korean cinema aficionados, and I don't disagree with that sort of like assessments of history. Of why the film just does, hasn't really stood out. I I I didn't. I don't. I don't regret watching it, but I I don't think I'm gonna seek it out in the future. Maybe if I'm really really bored at some point, I'll watch the third one. But I certainly have no wish to rewatch this one. Yeah, I just wish it'd be more about the main character, uh, Cha Yunjin, and like her husband. And if there'd been more focus on those two and tighter writing, I. F- like, I think it would have been a much better film. Okay, so I guess we could end our discussion here. This can be a shorter episode. Uh, <laughs> after the main discussion, we can jump into our news section. So, Jason, I see that you have kind of accumulated a few news items uh, since last time we spoke. So, why don't you let us know what they are? So, uh, we've got more film festivals in the autumn season, starting uh, with the. Vancouver International Film Festival 2023, which runs from September 28th to October 8th. And programmed for that, we've got Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, Hirokazu Koreeda's Monster, um, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Evil Does Not Exist, and we've also got um, Rikia Imaizumi's Undercurrents, a drama starring Yoko Maki, which is going to be released in Japan in October. Uh, Keiko Tsuruoka's Suguru Laka Girl, which was released in August in Japan, and uh, Makoto Nagahisa's short film Pisco, A Crab Child is in Love. And uh, following that, we've got the London Film Festival, uh, which runs from October 5th to the 16th. And we've got Miyazaki's How Do You Live, uh, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Evil Does Not Exist, uh, Koreeda's Monster. We've also got Vin Bender's Perfect Days, which took the camera door at Cannes Film Festival earlier this year. Uh, no, 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 wait, wait. Uh, Tien and Fams Inside the Yellow Cocoon won the Golden Camera at the Cannes Film Festival. That's been programmed for London Film Festival. Uh, we've got Wang Bing's Youth Spring and uh, Neo Sora's documentary on Ryuichi Sakamoto's Opus and a short film by Yu Araki named Tempo. And we had two Japanese films um, walking away with prizes. So... Ryusuke Hamaguchi took the Grand Jury Prize with Evil Does Not Exist. And Are you talking about the Venice, uh, the Venice Film Festival? Yes. Yes, or The Silver Lion, yes. Uh, just, uh, just, that was just, just released yesterday. I mean, the, or today, either yesterday or today, I don't remember exactly, but the just is very, 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 very recent news. Yes, it was announced uh, yesterday at the time of recording. And uh, I believe... Shinya Tsukamoto's Hokage won the Netpack Awards. Yeah, and of course the Golden Lion went to the Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things. Yes. Uh, I don't think it's a Greek film, but it is a Greek director. And uh, yeah, that's that's essentially it for our Autumn Festival roundup for now. Do you know anything about Evil Does Not Exist? So, uh, from what I understand, if I can uh, go back to my blog... (laughs) 
This is a collaboration between um, Yusuke Hamaguchi and um, the musician Aiko Ishibashi. Um, she worked on Drive My Car score, and um, they made two films out of a live score that uh, Ishibashi created. Um, one's called Gift, and um, that requires live music to be played at the screening. The other one's Evil Does Not Exist, which is a straight narrative, and um, it's drawn from the same material. And um, the story essentially um, is about a bucolic town just outside Tokyo, and land developers arrive with plans to sort of develop a tourist attraction. And the locals um, uh, disagree with those plans, and uh, conflict ensues. All right. Uh, I hope uh, I hope we get to see it before the year ends. Uh, unlikely, but uh, maybe maybe we'll make uh, our top uh, top of the year. Who knows? I, I, has it been theatrically released in Japan? Not yet, no. Okay, um, so I prob- probably we won't get to see it this year. A tentative release date is 2024. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. okay. So, so next year then. Uh, all right. Uh, not, not exactly news, but I've been closely following the writer's strike uh, in the US, which now has been going on for four months almost. And there was this uh, article, uh, I don't remember by whom, I wish I remembered who wrote it, that suggested, I don't know to what extent it was a suggestion and to what extent it was based on evidence, but because all these streaming services in the U.S. cannot have this sort of pile of money, pile of production money that they cannot spend in the U.S. because it's the writer's strike, and it's also the actor's strike, so pretty much all production has been halted for months now, and for fiscal reasons, they have to spend that money somehow or do something with it, production overseas, production outside the U.S., could inc- could see an increase in the next year or so because of the writer's strike in the U.S. So they might we might see more Netflix or Prime or uh, I don't know what else is Disney Plus or Apple Plus, Apple TV productions in Asia among other countries, of course, which they've been doing for a while now. But we could see an increase in those productions because of the effect of the writer's strike here in the U.S. Yeah, I I think I've read that like in France. Um, writers uh, have access to the data of streaming services, so they can see like um, pay and um, how many people watch, like how many hours. And that I think I've read that that was recently won um, in Germany, and that Korean um, film people are pushing for that as well. Yeah. All right, but uh, I think that's it for the news. Unless you have anything else to add. Uh, no, that's uh, about it from my end, really. Okay. So why don't we jump to the final section of the episode, and that is cultural consumption. So how's it uh, how's it been going for you, Jason? What uh, what fun things have you consumed in the last uh, couple of weeks? So yeah, in terms of video games, I got my Super Nintendo out and um, tested the shoot 'em up Herodias and the RPG Illusion of Time, and they work perfectly. Um, so like those are uh, probably games that I'll play at some point. I've also got the itch to replay Vagrant Story. Didn't you replay that relatively recently? I yes, this is <laughs> it's a favorite game of mine. It's the sort of game that once you understand the systems, I see. or you're comfortable with them, you can uh, go through it like in an hour. So like an initial playthrough can be anything up to thirty hours, and then like once you've got it down, it could be um, like just oh just under two hours. I've seen people play it in just under two hours, like ninety minutes. So, um. But I've mostly been watching films, especially like 90s Hollywood movies. Um, I watched a trio of Wes Anderson movies, um, 
Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, really enjoyed those. Kind of like that's the Royal Tenenbaums is the point where um, his aesthetic really went into overdrive and like the tweeness gets in between the like humanity of the characters and the um uh the and uh yeah the audience really um because I find like his later films aren't so effective. Although I did like the Grand Budapest Hotel a lot. I did like that one as well. Yeah, that's I, that might be. I haven't seen the first two. I haven't seen Rushmore and Bottle Rocket, so I can't say. But of all of his films, I, I'd say that one is probably my favorite. Yeah, just fantastic fairy tale quality to it, where the aesthetic is really appropriate. Um, I watched Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights for the first time. I was really impressed by that. Like he was twenty six years old when he made that. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it is an impressive film for the time. And uh, Gross Point Blank. Um, that's one I watched in the nineties, and I rewatched it again. Was it the nineties? Yeah, and um, or maybe the early two thousands. And I really enjoyed the writing. That really snappy writing. It's like a combination of Hong Kong action and uh, American wisecracking characters. Um, and I watched Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise and Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, yeah, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is a very interesting film, which for whatever two and a half hours. That I that it ran, I was bored the entire time. Okay, like I really appreciated the way that it zeroed in on the love story between Dracula and um uh, Mina oh, Harker. What's the who's the character that uh, uh, Keanu Reeves plays? Uh, is, is it jo- uh, Jonathan Harker? <sighs> yeah, it felt like his performance in that film felt so bad to me that I didn't, I wouldn't even had I not known who Keanu Reeves is. I would not think he's an actor. I think he would be just some guy that they grabbed off the street and say, hey, we need you here for, for, some, for a few days. Read these lines. That's, that's how wooden his performance felt to me in that, uh, in that movie. Yeah, there, there was like uh, American doing English enunciation. I don't even is... remember that part. I just remember that he felt extremely wooden and, and almost lacking any, any kind of like acting intonation. Uh, I think in, there's like a, a much more cartoonish quality to the other characters, which fit in with the plot. But yeah, Carrie, uh, uh, forgive me for the pronunciation, Carrie Alice, the guy in um, the, uh, what's the film of the bride, the princess bride? He does a really good English accent. Uh, but yeah, like I really appreciated the way it focused in on like uh, corruption of the blood and making um, jokes about uh, you know, or links to syphilis and so forth, which is like traditional readings of Dracula, like uh, foreign invasion and um, um, sexuality perverted. But also like the love story between Dracula and his bride, I like that gave it a new angle to approach the story. Uh, oh, another Coppola film I enjoyed was Rumblefish. It's the first time I ever watched it, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, Apart from that, I've been a pretty busy beaver with regards to my blog. Um, I finally put out my interview of Chihiro Ito on her film In Her Room, and that marks the end of my coverage of the New York Asian Film Festival for this year. I was really pleased with the interviews I managed to get with uh, filmmakers, and the films were really high quality. So, you know, uh, anybody who's interested, please uh, have a read of them and try and track down the films because I highly recommend them. And uh, I wrote about the crowdfunding campaign for Junk World, the prequel movie to Junkhead. Um, it's all in Japanese, but if you choose to contribute, uh, you can get access to uh, storyboards and models. Um, if you're in foreign territories, you're more likely to get access to the digital digital goods rather than the physical goods, as far as I understand. Um, 
and I wrote a review for Keitaro Sakon's film Lonely Glory, which I've been hyping up a lot. Um, it's got a great performance by Kokoro Morita, and it's a drama about individualism and familism and uh, community. And um, it's playing as part of the Japan Film Festival Plus's website, a season of indie films that's going to last up until October 31st. So go to the Japan Film Festival website and check out the 12 films on offer. Um, I can recommend most of them. I'm still working my way through them. Uh, this morning I watched Techno Brothers and um, it's by Hirobumi Watanabe and he's an acquired taste because his comedy is very, very dry. And uh, that's been my cultural consumption apart from practicing Japanese kanji. I've got to a point where I'm writing 400 a day because I wake up so early in the morning. Um, that's the easy part. The hard part will be using them in the context of actual sentences <laughs> because there are different readings to each kanji. Yeah, of course. And that's my cultural consumption. How about you, John? Uh, well, I'll start with the last one. So we did talk about, I don't remember if it was on, um, if it was on uh, air or if he was in private, but I did actually say to you that I was also interested in learning Japanese and I finally started. Okay. Uh, very early. I, I mean, I'm doing, uh, I downloaded the app Duolingo and that's what I'm doing. I also just, uh, just made some flashcards for the Hiragana's and that's, I think that's where I'm at. I've been using the app for about three days now. Yeah. Uh, I think. So that's, that's, that's it. I mean, that's interesting. It's something that I've been kind of in and out of doing for a long time, but now I the app I think makes it a bit easier. I don't know how good it is. It 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 seems to be mostly focused on phonetic learning. That means learning and understanding words by their sounds. I don't know to, if it ever gets to writing, but maybe it will at some point. Uh, I do have a recommendation then. Um, Japanese for busy people series. Um, uh, and if you get the Kana edition, it will introduce you to writing. Um, quite effectively. Yeah, well, that well, the, I, I I remember that you you recommended it to me on uh, on Twitter, uh, and I I do I think I did I'm pretty sure I did get an electronic version of the book. I don't know which version of it is. The problem is, I'm not sure if uh, what I want to do. Do I want to do I want to get into writing right away, or should I learn to speak Japanese and understand Japanese first, and then I can worry about writing later. Because time is limited, of course. That's that's the that's the issue. From from my classroom experience, you we focused on the phonetics at first. So Japanese for busy people has the um, kana is essentially hiragana and katakana are the phonetic alphabets, and that's what will usually be covered first. Once you've managed to master the sounds, um, it'll introduce you to the writing aspect of it, in which you can utilize the sounds and um, understand how they work. And then in later later editions of the series, you'll get the kanji, which integrates all the different sounds together. Yeah, so the, I mean, so that, I mean that's good. But one one reason why I went with the app is because it's also so convenient. I can just tap on any word and I can immediately hear how it's supposed to sound. So it's just so much, so much. I think the book also came up with a tape or a CD or something like that. Yes, that yeah, sounds right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it, again, it's it's so much more convenient on the app. I don't have to worry about sound files and all that. I think uh, uh, there's little getting away from the fact that you can have to do the writing and you can have to learn it by rote, essentially. Well, that's that's what I'm kind of dreading. Even if I eventually memorize the uh, hiragana, which I I hope to do, I I I don't even want to think about like trying to learn any kanji. I might. I might just be satisfied with being able to understand Japanese, and I think that might be good enough for me. If I if I get to that point and feel more ambitious to learn more, then I'll probably 
look up for strategies on how to do that. But for now, I think I just want to get to the point where I can understand some phrases and I can understand, for example, people in movies say things and that's about it. <laughs> Connor Yaro. <laughs> yeah. Um, I watched a few movies. Let me see if I can remember which movies. I watched the second, the sequel to A Quiet Place, so The Quiet Place 2. Uh, which I thought is pretty good. Like a lot of like sort of like new American horror movies or like the the A24 horror movies that have been kind of like quite well received recently. That's one of the few that I really enjoyed. The first movie, I thought it was really, really good. The second movie was uh, they delved into the monster a lot more, but they didn't go they didn't go into like the origin of the monster or what happened. I think, well, I did think, I think, I think they did specify some things, but it's still focused on the survival of the, of the, of the family members without the dad, of course, because the dad dies in the first movie. Hopefully nobody's spoiled by that. Well, uh, too late now, but well, well, the first movie is a few years old now. Uh, well, the second movie is a few years old too, but uh, I'm kind of eagerly waiting for the third movie because I, I, I've enjoyed this series so far. I thought the second one was did a pretty good job at continuing. Uh, it's I don't know that I would even consider this a horror movie. I think there are scary elements to it. I think the first one was more of a typical horror movie. Whereas the, sec the second one, I would classify it as a monster movie more than a horror movie. Yeah. Did, did you feel like the monster designs were similar to The Host? No, I don't know. Not not. I, I I'd have to rewatch it with that mind, but on the spot, I didn't. Not at all. It felt very very unique. In the first movie, they don't really show the monster a lot. They showed very 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 briefly and fleetingly, except of the end, because it's all about sort of like the conceit, the sound, right? If you see the monster, it's too late. But in the second movie, it becomes a lot more. But no, I do not think he was a he was a, at all similar to the host. Yeah, I have to rewatch the host. Um... Yeah, I think it's a great concept for a monster when it's drawn to science. So you can imagine how they would just uh, annihilate militaries around the world because guns make a lot of noise. But uh, yeah, like you, I did. Uh, well, I did. I just. I I remember watching it in the cinema and coming away disappointed because I was expecting a horror movie and it was more like a monster movie. As you it, said. it is. Yeah, like I said, the first one has more for horror movie, but the second one I wouldn't even classify it as a horror movie. I think it's a monster movie through and through. There are horror elements to it, but that's it. Yeah. Um, what else? I watched another movie on uh, Amazon Prime called Radius, which was an indie science fiction movie about a person who wakes up from an accident and magically finds out that anybody within a 50-foot radius of him just dies. Any creature. Uh, <laughs> Blimey. Yes, so it's quite, quite, uh, quite interesting, except when finally he discovers a woman that uh, that kind of cancels his power out, so they have to stay together, otherwise they, he will kill anyone within that radius but of course both have amnesia neither of them remember what happened to kind of give them those powers but what happens if the relationship breaks down and they want to kill yeah, well, each other that's that's the kind of like the point of the movie and then eventually things happen i don't want to spoil it but i too was a fun movie nothing I, I wouldn't nothing extraordinary it's one of those that never made it to theaters it's just a, kind of like a web movie but uh it's on amazon prime i would recommend it so watch it now before Amazon delists it for tax reasons. Yes. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, I didn't write these down. I should have written down. Oh, I finally watched the new Babylon 5 animated movie, Babylon 5 The Road Home. And as I've mentioned it, um, as I mentioned before in the show, I'm a huge fan of Babylon 5, the series. And the movie was just that. It was sort of like a love letter to the fans. I don't know that I would recommend anybody start with this movie. 
uh, if you're a fan of the series, you would enjoy this movie. But overall, I thought it was as if you're just trying to approach it as a neutral. It was it fared fairly average. There was a lot of fan service. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the actors in the original Bobby Five, Babylon Five have died, so they had to use different actors for the voices. And even the voice of the same actors who came back to do them, they just felt different. There's something odd about it. I was, I'm not in love with the animation. I thought the animation was uh, strange. There was kind of like a wooden quality, like a too static quality to the animation. It felt like 70s animations, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Where it's like too, like there's like the movement just feels unnatural in some way. Uh, it was it was a multiverse plot, which I would have preferred like a con- something of a continuation. Like the Babylon Five ended with a lot of questions, and I would have preferred a continuation about uh, a story that takes place after, as opposed to something happening and now he jumps back and forth between multiverses. So uh, wait, does this affect the canon anymore? With, with with the multiverse, is that like a get out of jail free card? Well, I, that's kind of how it is. But also, a lot of people have speculated because there's a from a rumored series in preparation, like a reboot, and a lot of people speculate that the reboot, the reboot of the the new Babylon Five, which is uh in, currently in preparation, if you believe the rumors, uh, it currently delayed by the writer's strike, so it might it might have already been in production had it not been for the strike. Uh, a lot of people are speculating that it's going to be set in one of the multiverses that Sheridan visits in this movie. Okay, where things happen differently, and that's kind of an excuse. For, for like him having a card launch on the series. Because you can't just like okay. remake the same thing, right? Well, you can try. <laughs> well, a lot of people try, but considering this is like the same person, um, it's kind of, a, I'm kind of disappointed. Well, like I said, the film is average, but I kind of, I'm kind of disappointed that it took so long to get like another series because Babylon 5 was relatively successful and, um, and it was never intended to be one series. It was intended to sort of like be a Star Trek type of franchise where there would be continuations and you know, movies and other TV shows and other media. And it just, that never happened. And I recently read, and I don't know if this is anecdotal or if this is, um, uh, or if this is just pure speculation, but that there was one high-ranking executive at Warner Brothers, which is what, who produced the original Bible 5, who did not like J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5. So, and so that's what kind of halted pretty much any production uh, of future content after the show, because that, that high executive disliked Straczynski so much that it just would not let him like, continue doing anything with the series. And in fact, it, so, it was like that, if that true would explain why the Babylon 5 did not make it to any streaming service until like four years ago. Uh, which is crazy to think that such a such a popular franchise at, at the time would not actually be, be available on any streaming service until like 2018, 2019. Uh, and that, people said, coincided when, when this executive finally retired from Warner Brothers. That's one grudge. <laughs> That's one grudge for the ages. Yeah, but which is a shame because I thought Straczynski is a very, very talented writer. Extremely talented writer. We've both talked about the series before, like its depiction of like the rise of fascism. Absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 fantastic. It's just fantastic. About the movie average, but again, if you're a fan, you will enjoy the movie. It's it's essentially almost entirely fan service. I mean, that's what this movie is, and it's a it's or I wouldn't call it fan service. I would call it a love letter to the fans. And I I think because they've, it's been like almost twenty years since a, since new content, it kind of like I I I'm not mad about it. It feels justified that that's what. Straczynski would do for like this one 
if indeed the rumors about a new series are true, then we'll get like legitimate new content when that happens in one year or two year, who knows? Uh, and this one was just something to wet your beak to just, you know, like, please, the fans give them something new, you know, kind of like, you know, like have something for the streaming services, basically. Or maybe a trial balloon as well. Maybe, maybe. Although the series will be live action, so uh, I wouldn't mind a, an animated series, but no, they're going to do it live action. Okay, so look forward to more Babylon 5 discussion in future episodes of Heroic Purgatory. If, if that does happen, yes. Uh, what else? Oh, I did finally finish Monster. Okay, what did you think? So the, just to give a bit of an explanation why I stopped, I was watching it with a friend and we were watching it together. And that's, I, I like watching things with other people. Like that adds to the enjoyment for me. And we're watching two episodes, three episodes a day sometimes. And that was fine for me. But he was enjoying the series so much that he just couldn't wait for our schedule. So he just, one night, he just binged the whole thing. And, and Traitor. Uh, yeah, and then just kind of left me dry. So I kind of took me a while. I finally decided, you know, last week I said, fine, whatever, I'm just going to finish it. Uh, and whereas my friend is probably right with you and kind of considered this one of the best anime of all time, I am just not there. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Uh, no. I, I, like, I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed parts of it a lot. And then there were a lot of other silly parts that, like I, I mentioned, like, forever ago when we talked about this, that I just found very, very unbelievable, very ungrounded for an anime, for a story that is otherwise very grounded in reality. There were a lot of, like, anime logic moments that just didn't make sense to me. There was... So, I enjoyed the beginning of the series a lot, and then I enjoyed the ending of the series a lot, but there was, like, a, a good chunk in the middle. I want to say maybe 20 episodes, 25 episodes in the middle where I just had to power through it. Like, I was not enjoying it at all. I was just kind of like, it was really hard to get from episode to episode. And then around the time where he gets back to Germany, that's when I kind of started, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to be curious again about, okay, now I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more eager from, to go from episode to episode. And, and then at the end, it was, I liked the ending. I thought the conclusion uh, of the buildup was, uh, was, uh, was uh, really, really well done. So essentially, the stuff that takes place in Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah, like that, and like slightly before that, like about where the library fire happens. Like that's where the boredom kind of started for me. Whereas, like the stuff about the rise of the neo Nazis, yeah, and their plots were it, quite gripping. Yeah, there was, um, like I said, like I find stuff that I find like a little ridiculous. Like, um, I don't think this spoils anything, but Johan dressed as Anna. Uh, that I, I I just took completely took me out of it. Like it it didn't. I don't hey, like they're twins. They're twins, but they're really not twins. They're fraternal twins. Yeah, but I don't know. That just like it. That's that's anime logic. It just I, I, I don't. That, that, that was a jaw dropping scene. I did not see that coming. I didn't see it coming either. So because it it's so unlikely to happen that it makes no sense. That's why. But uh, uh, more minor points. There was one actually thing that kind of stood out to me is like the whole like idea about like like communists in uh in Czech in the Czech Republic try to overthrow like the capitalist government like this sort of like secret undertone of like like all the old guard trying to trying to like regain their position of power in Czech Republic which kind of having grown up in eastern europe and having grown up in a country that is uh that used to be a communist dictatorship that doesn't strike as true to me. I don't know if there is a, a real history of that happening, but when when the finally the like the Berlin Wall fell, and this is my experience, 
people were so fed up with communism that nobody would have kind of like, there would have been absolutely no support for that. In especially in the early '90s, it was just it like like struck me as unrealistic. And to add on top of that, what actually happened in a lot of countries, even even though the system changed, a lot of people that were in positions of power during communism remained in position of power during capitalism. When the when the regime changed, there was never really this need for rebellion in all these countries. If you if you look up who were in charge of these governments in all of Eastern Europe in the '90s and do research on them, you'll find that. A lot of them were in positions of power somehow in in during the communist regime. Like Putin was a KGB agent. Yeah. In uh, like Yeltsin was a was also in a position of power. It's not uh, the, like it, there wasn't really this kind of like secret need for rebellion that the show depicts. A very minor plot point, but it's something that having experienced kind of the life there personally, it, it sort of like it, it rung as very untrue to me. Mm, well, I, I can't speak to that, but like. I, th- I think a few months ago, German police had exposed this sort of underground plot by people uh, on the far right who had their own passports and so forth, who were sort of still looking to Nazi ideals and had created like a state within the states. And like there, were, I think there are trials uh, going on about that right now. So, like, yeah, but that's cause... 80 years. It's different when it happens 80. 80- years ago and it's different when it happens you know right after the regime change at a time where there wasn't really a a, a true desire for change by most of the people and where the same people were in power anyway this is i mean i understand the point you're making but this is a different scenario okay um uh yeah i mean that i don't know i don't have much else to say like i enjoyed it i'm i'm, I'm sounding more negative than i mean to be i thought it was a fun show i can understand why a lot of people like it but like I said, like a chunk of it was just so hard for me to get through. If I was able to kind of overlook that, I would have had a much, much higher opinion of it. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's a role reversal now. I was the negative one in the first half. <laughs> That's all right. But uh, yeah, I think we could both agree that like Monster has greater ambitions than uh, your typical anime. The fact that it's set in the real world and deals with real history just makes it unique. So if anybody wants something different from like, one Piece, Dragon Ball, or Ranma Half, so on, you know, definitely try it, Monster. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's kind of like my takeaway, that even despite all the criticism, it is an anime like anything else. It is, and someone, as someone, I, I'm skeptical in making this claim because I'm not someone who watches a lot of anime, but at least for what I've seen, this is unlike anything else that I've seen, and I, nothing can take away from that. And I, I'm always... I always applaud ambition, even even when I don't personally like it or identify with it. Like, so he tried to do something different, and I I always applaud that effort to to do something that's completely unlike anything else that uh, that was probably around at the time. So, um, Monster was created by Naoki Urasawa, and he's got an anime that's going to be premiering on Netflix called Pluto, which is like uh, his take on the Astro Boy legend. Okay, interesting. Uh, okay, speaking of uh, adaptations, uh, did you see uh, the One Piece adaptations? I, I don't. I haven't watched a single episode of One Piece, so I would not be the guy to judge it. But I think you mentioned that you have watched One Piece. I've watched the anime for One Piece, um, specifically like the first, uh, like the opening episodes up to um, the Reindeer Dudes introduction, and then Thriller Bark. Yeah, there are a lot. Like, what episode is that? Because there are like 700 episodes for One Piece, aren't there? 
yeah, like I just dipped in and out um, when it was broadcast on television, like maybe like the first 20 or 30 episodes, and then via the magic of YouTube, <laughs> Thriller Bark arc, which is like, I don't know, 300 episodes in. Don't, don't quote me on that. Did you check out this new live action one? No, but I've heard very good things about it. People responding very positively, and that's okay. I haven't, I haven't read anything about it. Yeah, it struck me as a surprise because that would seem to be harder to adapt than Cowboy Bebop because of the fantastical powers of the One Piece crew. It all depends on who who adapts it. Yes, yes, but yeah, like uh, wherever I've uh, seen One Piece live action mentioned, positive response to it so uh i might check it out it is that this is netflix right yes yes okay yeah I, I don't think i will be checking out but i will be curious to hear your thoughts if you check it out and it cannot be it has to be a short series relatively speaking yeah um one of the things that i've read is that like people are surprised uh well people are disappointed that it is so short because they're enjoying it so much so they're savoring like the final episodes and so forth yeah uh, oh, speaking of uh, going back to the previous point as well, I, I did also read that the ending of Monster the Anime is different from the ending in the manga. So I'd be curious oh, to, I haven't to, read it. to see. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's different in like a superficial way or if it's different in like in a fundamental way, because I did at the ending of the anime did leave me a little bit of, uh, you know, OK, so what what now? You know, what what does this all mean? Uh, did you get a spoiler alert? Did you uh, do you think the anime suggested all that like Johan isn't real? Oh no, he's real, but like the brand of despair and hatred that he represents is back out there. <laughs> you can't keep it there. Uh, yeah, because like yeah, you see, because you see the bed empty and him either sitting or looking at an empty bed. So I, I wonder if the anime was implying that it was like a like a double personality, like a dual personality disorder, some multiple personality disorder, or anything like that. Yeah, no, I just took it as, like, uh, the battle between hope and despair, good and evil, will carry on. Okay, uh, what else? Oh, and I, I mean, that's, that's it for, I've played some, a few games on my Steam Deck, but nothing, nothing that's kind of left an impression, just trying a few things here and there. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think I probably spent enough time on cultural consumption, and unless there's anything else, Jason, we can probably end the episode here. Uh, I would just like to point out to listeners, I said Kono Yaro earlier. Do not use that in Japan because that's an insult. Oh, <laughs> and, okay. uh, you, and I was not referring to anybody in particular with that insult. It's just something famous that you'll hear in many a Yakuza movie. Yes. Well, it would have been funnier if you just left it like that and just see what happened. But um, but yeah, I think I think uh, this is a good place to end the episode. Any closing thoughts, Jason? Um, I was harsh on my wife is a gangster. I think she should have um, led. Uh, uh, a lawful, law-abiding life, and um, that's me speaking as a man. I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, no, I really liked uh, Cha Yun-jin's character when she was an outlaw, and she was breaking all the rules, and I wish that the film had adhered to that. Um, if there's ever a reboot of the movie, I would like to watch it, if it's stuck to that. And um, uh, yeah, the films, they're alright. I was critical of them. Maybe other people will enjoy them. Um, John, you certainly did. Yeah, oh, but just to clarify, like I mentioned before, I was trying also, as I often do, to provide a slightly opposing view and point out more of the positive of the fence. I did not like it that much. I do think that <laughs> that the overall, uh, I and I hope this was clear in my kind of petition, I think that the overall sense is that it is an average, a bang average movie. 
but there are, I think, some positives to it that I kind of I would just like to point out, even if it's only as an opposing point of view to what you were mentioning. Yeah. So yeah, like anybody listening to this, you've heard our views. Please let us know by uh, contacting us on social media. I'll begin checking social media much more regularly now. And uh, if you're still listening, thank you very much. Um, and uh, hope you join us for the next episode. Thank you very much for this discussion, John. And uh, yeah, looking forward to what we're going to cover next. Absolutely. All right. So if you have any questions, concerns, suggestions, comments, please let us know at heroic-purgatory.com or, or, on, or on Twitter at uh, Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. I need